Well, friends, do please keep uh, Malachi 1 open, either uh, uh, in a Bible, uh, physically or uh, electronically. Um, What do you think the top threat to a healthy relationship is? It could be a family relationship or a friendship, a romantic relationship. I think one of the top threats to a healthy relationship is complacency. Just taking that other person for granted. Stopping working at the relationship. Just going through the motions. Take a marriage, for example. Over time, it is all too easy for complacency to creep into even the best of marriages. The happy couple end up taking each other for granted, simply assuming the presence of the other person without actively strengthening that relationship. The years go by. And without anyone particularly being aware of it or intending for it to happen, they just end up coexisting under the same roof, more like housemates than husband and wife. See, if you want a healthy marriage, indeed any healthy relationship, you need to fight the threat of complacency, especially if that relationship has been going on for some time. Friends, that same principle applies to our spiritual relationship with God. Especially if we've enjoyed that relationship for a period of time. It can be all too easy to end up just taking God for granted. Presuming on his kindly presence. Going through and just ending up going through those religious motions. You see, walking with God over a period of time can dull us to his goodness. It can mute the sweetness of his name in our ears. It can desensitize us to his grace. Our relationship with God can become the white noise, the the background static of our day-to-day lives that we just get used to and tune out. We're not necessarily aware this is taking place. We don't intend for it to happen, but but it can still happen. We're not deliberately kicking against God, but we just end up going through those spiritual motions without much heart or desire or commitment. We still turn up at church. We still say that our faith defines us in some way. We still say the right things, but we stop working with that relationship with God. We're infected with spiritual complacency. I wonder if that describes any of us individually or KCC as a church this afternoon. I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Because the threat of spiritual complacency has always loomed large for God's people. It was a threat that the first hearers of Malachi's prophecy had given into. In Malachi, we're towards the end of the Old Testament story. The people of Israel have returned to the land from the exile in Babylon. And hopes were high how glorious the future would be upon their return. But it hadn't turned out that way. Life was hard back in the land. It was a grind simply getting through the day. Harvests were fragile and the people were vulnerable. And these challenging circumstances have triggered a plague of spiritual complacency in the people. 
complacent about the worship of God. They're going through the religious motions at the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, but they're cutting all sorts of corners, giving God the bare minimum rather than the best that he is entitled to. Complacent about the character of God. Frankly, they're weary of God and God is weary of them because they're speaking about him in untrue ways, questioning his just character, concluding that serving God is frankly futile. Complacent about the words of God. They show a disturbing pattern of questioning what God says. Actually, the prophecy of Malachi as a whole is structured around a series of disputes, we'll see this term, between God and his people, where God makes a statement about their spiritual complacency. And instinctively, they question what God said. They push back on the truthfulness of God's very words. They're not seeking clarification. (laughs) They're more like the child with their fingers in their ears, refusing to hear the truth. The people are infected by spiritual complacency. But God loves his people too much to leave them there. God loves his glory too much to leave them there. So he raises up Malachi, his messenger, and through Malachi brings his words to this complacent people. And what a word it is. The first verse of the the book tells us it is a prophecy. It is the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And you see, through these words, God reminds his people who they're dealing with uh, as their covenant lords. What he rightly demands from those who claim allegiance to him and why they can hope in him for their future. We'll see over this term, it is a rich and challenging and profound message. And it is a message for us today, especially where we are prone to spiritual complacency. You see, we read this prophecy as God's people today, the fulfilment of Old Testament Israel, those bound to God by the blood of the new covenant sealed in Jesus' death. You see, God wants to win us back. And through these words, he gives us resources to fight spiritual complacency in our hearts and together in this church. God will say hard and challenging things to us through this prophecy. So unlike Israel of old, will we humble ourselves today before the word of the Lord? Will we let God be God and simply let him speak and listen before we push back at what he says? And to help us do that, we need to be sure that when God says hard things, that's not because he doesn't love us but precisely because he does love us. And that's where the prophecy of Malachi opens. In ringing tones, look down at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. And see that pattern? Immediately that assertion is questioned. How have you loved us? Verse 2. In what ways? How can we be sure? How do we know? The circumstances of Israel's day-to-day life made it hard for them to believe that God loved them. Maybe that describes us wonderfully this afternoon. So to persuade us that God loves his people, we're going to see three aspects of God's love this afternoon. Firstly, we see that God's love for his people is a covenantal love. It is covenant love. 
We know it's covenant love because of the one who's declaring his love. Look at verse 2. It is the Lord, capital letters in our English Bibles, who declares his love for Israel. The Lord, that is Yahweh. That is God's personal name. It is this God, this Lord, who loves his people. And that very name, Yahweh, is linked throughout the story of the Old Testament with God's promise-making and promise-keeping ability. When it is Yahweh, when it is the Lord who says these things, we're meant to hear deep echoes of his commitment to his people, how he has bound himself to Israel in unfailing covenant love. You see, Yahweh loves his people with a reliable and trustworthy and constant love. It is a love that won't give up, that won't walk away and won't prove false. His love endures, as we said earlier in our service. It remains. It is a love that you and I can base our lives on. It is a love that is pledged and promised. We hear faint echoes of this kind of covenant love in the vows and promises that a husband and wife make on their wedding day. Promises to have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. It is covenant love we're dealing with today. You see, when this God says he loves you, You can trust him. You can take him at his words. It's covenant love that Yahweh has for his people. That's the first thing, covenant love. Secondly, it is an active love. It is an active love. This love is more than mere words. It is a love that is seen and experienced in action. Yahweh has set his love on his people in the far distant past and brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Yahweh has set his love on his people and brought them back from the exile in Babylon in more recent memory. Yahweh has set his love on his people and has raised up Malachi to bring them to their spiritual senses. When this God says he loves you, you can know that he'll back that claim up with action. For your goods, it is an active love. The third thing we see about Yahweh's love for his people, though, is that it is a sovereign love. Love. It is a sovereign love. And this is where we just need to slow down a little bit, because here these words get a bit more challenging, don't they? We might need to do a bit of a run-up and a run-through to make sure we're hearing what God is saying. Yahweh's love for his people is a sovereign love. It is his sovereign choice who to love. It's a love, we read, experienced by Jacob, but not by Esau. Look at verse 2 and 3. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Yahweh loves Jacob, but he does not love. He hates, in the words here, Esau. What does that mean? (laughs) Surely God's a God of love, not a God of hate, right? How do we make sense of this? It sounds harsh, doesn't it, if we're being honest? But as this is the word of the Lord, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's lean in and let's think our way through it. We need to think firstly about the background of this verse, the background of this verse. 
Uh, Malachi refers here to Jacob and Esau, and he's, he's riffing off the story in Genesis uh, 25, if you've read that in the Old Testament. Both Jacob and Esau are descendants of Abraham, the patriarch, the, the forefather of the Jewish nation. Both are sons of Isaac. Esau is the elder son. And the cultural expectation is that Esau is going to receive God's covenant promises and be blessed to pass those promises on to his descendants in the future. As the firstborn son, he has the right to inherit. Sorry if you're a second or third sibling in the family this afternoon. No inheritance for you. And yet, in God's sovereign choice, he flips those cultural expectations. He chooses Jacob, the younger son, to inherit the promises, and not Esau. And Malachi sees that as an expression of God's sovereign love for Jacob. Now, let's be clear, there isn't any personal animosity towards Esau. It's just that he's not loved in that sense of receiving the promises and the blessings. We also need to think, uh, secondly, about the setting of this verse, the setting of the verse. Because Malachi broadens out from this incident in Genesis to include the offspring of Jacob and Esau, respectively. That's the way he argues, isn't it? Jacob also stands for the people of Israel, his descendants. And Esau also stands for the people of Edom, who are named his descendants. So two people, two individuals, but two nations who spring from them. And these two nations shared a common family ancestry because Jacob and Esau were brothers. They they came from the same stock, if you like. And yet the paths of the lives of these nations, their current and future trajectories are profoundly different. And that tells us that when we're in these verses, we need to not just think individually, but we also need to think corporately as well. Let me try and kind of unpack kind of how that might work. So, for example, we're very happy, aren't we, I guess, to say that in the UK, we as a nation are together grieving the passing of our monarch, Queen Elizabeth II. And we kind of use that language. Now, when we say things like that, we don't mean that every single individual, irrespectively, is grieving in quite the same way, or is that going to go to London and pay their respects by walking past her coffin. We, need to, we think kind of corporately as well as individually, And that's what we need to do here, I think. Because we're being told Yahweh sovereignly loves his people, Jacob, the Israelites. He has chosen to commit to them as his people, to love them, to claim them as his own. Not because Israel is more deserving or more worthy or more attractive to Yahweh than the other nations. Far from it. Israel had nothing she could boast about or point to as the grounds for why Yahweh loves her. No, it is sovereign love, isn't it? And the reason why Yahweh loves Jacob, frankly, are hidden within his own eternal plans. We can't probe into them. He loves his people because he loves his people because he loves his people. And in his sovereign choice, God has called Israel to be his people. He loves them. Now, it is possible to move from Edom to Israel. The boundaries of Edom are not watertight and sealed. And yet Yahweh has not called Edom as his people. He has not loved them in that way. He, he has hated them, in Malachi's words. That takes us, thirdly, bear with me, to then the meaning of this verse. 
we need to see that Yahweh has such fierce and passionate and devoted love for his people that whenever he doesn't show that same love to others, it can be described as hating them. You see, Malachi is using a strong poetic device to make a point. Jesus does exactly the same thing, doesn't he? You think of what Jesus says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, same word, his father or mother, wife or children, brothers or sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 26. I don't think we're meant to conclude Jesus is teaching that unless we hate our parents or or our family, absolutely, we can never follow him. No, but he's saying we should love him so much that in comparison, in relative terms, it's as if we hate anything and everything else compared to him, even our nearest and dearest. You see, likewise, in relative terms, understood as commitment to a people, Yahweh loves Judah. He hates Edom. That takes us then, fourthly, to the history behind these verses. Here we dive back into the the verses, because the outworking of Yahweh hating Esau, we read, is judgment on the nation. Look at verse 3. Yahweh hates Edom, and I've turned, he says, his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. And even if Edom attempts to rebuild, they won't be successful. Verse 4, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And again, these words sound harsh, don't they? So it's helpful to see that there is a historic dynamic at work here. Although they were related nations, in recent history, Edom has had a nasty habit of kicking Israel when they're down. You can read elsewhere in the prophets how Edom has seized the opportunity to harass Israel when she went into exile. They've been mocking her in her suffering. And kind of like in a similar way to how we instinctively leap in to defend our family and come to their aid and defence if they're threatened, Yahweh is so committed in sovereign love to his people that he stands inevitably against those who oppress his people. He's provoked by that. And he will bring retribution on those who stand against his people. There's a historical thing here that helps us make sense of these verses. Which brings us finally, you'll be pleased to know, into this section, to the purpose then of these verses. What is the point of of all this stuff? Well, remember the context. Yahweh is seeking to persuade his people that he loves them. And so taking a step back, he spells out the negative picture on the one hand of what the future holds for Edom to reassure his people Israel that he will never treat them in that way. You see, Edom will not prosper. They will be destroyed. They won't be allowed to rebuild. But Yahweh's treatment of Israel is very different. He has already restored them. He's brought them back to the land. The rebuilding process will continue. They have a glorious future that Malachi will spell out towards the end of his prophecy. God is still with them. And when Israel sees their privileged position in the downfall of Edom, verse 5, God says, you will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the response of God's people to God's sovereign 
love. Because you see, when this God says he loves you, you can know that he's chosen to love you. That he won't row back on that decision because it is his sovereign choice. I've loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Well, friends, here are three aspects of God's love for his people. It is a covenantal love. It is an active love. It is a sovereign love. And could it be that we are loved with that same love today? Yes. If we are believers in Jesus, we are part of God's new covenant people. We're part of the church, the fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, that reality that God was preparing for as he was engaged in Israel in their history. We are joined to the people of God of old. We're part of that one covenant people, even if now there is newness and difference because we live after Jesus has died and risen again. And so this afternoon, Yahweh wants us, his people, to know that we are objects of his love. A covenant love. An active love. A sovereign love. I don't know about you, but often when I hear statements like that, I subtly edit them in my mind and heart. I hear, God loves his people And I insert open brackets, but not you, Merkit, because of what you did last week, because of your failure in that area, because your heart is so cold and so slow to trust God. Or I insert things like open brackets, but that's obviously not true because of how hard things are in life at the moment. My car broke down last week. My family are a mess. My job is stressful. My circumstances don't fit that picture, close bracket. I wonder if that sounds familiar to any of you here. Friends, the truth is we don't have to insert those statements. I don't have to, and you don't have to if we're in Christ today. The truth is, when I think that way, I'm looking at things in the wrong way, and my eyes are not reliable. Just as Obi-Wan Kenobi said in the Star Wars initial trilogy, your eyes can deceive you, don't trust them. It's good spiritual counsel at times. Rather, I need to trust what God says. I need to trust that Yahweh's love is a covenant love, love that he's pledged to his people in spite of their sin and slowness, and actually in full awareness of those realities. I need to remember that Yahweh's love is an active love, that he's committed deeply to save and renew and restore his people to himself and that nothing will get in the way of that being fulfilled. I need to remember that Yahweh's love is a sovereign love, not one based on merit or effort or deserve, deserving it, but one that is free and unlooked for and gracious. Friends, if you're prone to insert those statements when you hear of God's love, hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 5. At just the right time, 
When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Here's Yahweh's covenantal love. It's calling us to himself through faith in Jesus, isn't it? Here's Yahweh's active love, sending his son Jesus to die for us in our place instead of us so we could be rescued from God's judgment. Here is Yahweh's sovereign love. It is love shown when we were his enemies, when we weren't even looking for rescue. Christ died for us. Hear that word. Hear also the word of the Lord from Romans 8. I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will do what? Will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, when we find our hearts saying to Yahweh, how have you loved us? Yahweh points us to the cross and says, see, I sent my son to die for you, to bear your curse and condemnation so you could go free and be forgiven and join my people. What greater demonstration of Yahweh's covenantal and active and sovereign love could we expect? We are loved by Yahweh with a covenantal, active and sovereign love. To begin to cure his people of that spiritual complacency, Malachi begins his book by reminding the people that Yahweh loves them. If we want to fight spiritual complacency in our hearts today, let's grasp this truth that Yahweh loves his people with a covenantal and active and a sovereign love. But I know and you know that it can be hard to grasp that, can't we? Can't it? So can I encourage us this week, let's make it our pattern to pray Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 for each other this week. Paul prays in Ephesians 3. I pray that you, he says, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. See, we need divine help to grasp the scale of Christ's love. That's why Paul prays. That's why we must pray. We need each other, though, Paul also says, to grasp the scope of Christ's love. That's what he says. It's together with the Lord's people we grasp this love. So actually, as we look around this church today, as we see different people from different backgrounds with different stories and different temperaments being brought to Christ, together we begin to grasp something of Christ's love. Together we begin to know something of Christ's love. This isn't just a me and Yahweh thing. This is an us and Yahweh thing. And together, as we grasp Christ's love, we will find spiritual energy and enthusiasm seeping into our veins and overcoming that apathy and complacency that often sets in if we're not careful.
So friends, as we finish, can I urge you, please set before your heart this week Yahweh's covenantal, active and sovereign love. Can I encourage you this week, walk close to the cross so that the sparks of your love might be kindled into a flame that burns. Trust you are as loved as Yahweh says you are. And then seek to love the Lord your God in return with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're going to take a moment in quietness in our hearts just to engage with the Lord. Maybe there's something there that's particularly encouraged or challenged you, stirred you. Why don't you just pray in response to God's word in the quietness, and then I'll pray in a moment. Gracious Father, as we've reflected uh, on these words, Father, there are hard things here, things that do stretch our minds and can stump us um, and give us pause for thought and, and, and drive us back to your word for answers. That's n- not a bad thing in, in any shape or form. But these are hard words at times. So please, Father, I pray for each and every one of us, that in the midst of maybe the hard things and the questions, we would be utterly assured and utterly convinced again this afternoon that you love us. Because you've shown your covenant love in sending Jesus to rescue us. You've shown your active love in giving him up for our sins so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You have shown your Sovereign love, in that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Father, give us confidence in you and in your love this afternoon. And Father, we pray that together with all the Lord's holy people, we might have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and indeed, in our own lives and experience, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that together here as KCC, we would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.